Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Douglas McMaster again. And before I hit record, we were saying, oh, we really enjoyed the last conversation. And I was about to ask, and I wanted to ask for the listeners, what made it so enjoyable? I, I imagine you talk about your restaurant a lot, and I imagine you have a lot of interviews, you've written a book, and you must have expressed these things a lot, and as have I. But there's something different about this conversation, about our conversation to me. How about you? I was, for a number of days after our, our chat, it resonated so many, so many different points that were made. And there was a feeling that I got that there's this idea in psychology called transference. And it's basically saying that everyone has a level of a degree of compatibility, a whole spectrum and everything in between and on different levels. And there is something, I don't know, the way you think is particularly original. And I've certainly never had a conversation with somebody who thinks like you think and has had your experience. And and also there's a degree of modesty, which I find quite encouraging to say things. I just really enjoyed that conversation it felt like I've never had a conversation like that and it was new territory for me which is a very unusual thing very unusual so I really appreciated your position and your thoughts and how that made me think about my thoughts so yeah it was a really nice conversation now that anyone would call me humble implies you must have me confused with somebody else I don't think myself is particularly humble you're definitely humble you're definitely there's no question what made it great for me was that I felt we had shared experiences of taking on something that I felt like there's a pattern of, I just want to change my food habits. And then that leads to, I got to learn more about nature. It's not just, I, I can't just go to the store and get the thing off the shelf anymore and open up the package. And then I have to start rejecting all this world that I'd grown up to think of as my normal world of Twinkies and Ben and Jerry's. Then and not only the products, but the system around it. And then I have to learn psychology. Why did I think the way that I did? Why, how does everybody think? And then I can't help but reach the point of having to lead others because it seems blatantly obvious that the way that I grew up with Tang is just untenable. And not only untenable, it's, it's miserable for me as an individual and I believe for everyone and as a society, it's isolating and dependency and polluting. And I think most people who have not tried would hear that and think, yeah, probably, but still there's a lot of progress. We don't want to throw away the baby with the bathwater. But the more steps you take in or the more steps that I've taken in and that I felt that you had, the more it becomes, see, from the outside, they're going to say, I'm, I sound like I'm on a mission or like a crusade, but it's more like a liberation and to talk to someone who has not only done it and has made it his life, not because you're crazy, but the same way any parent would make their child their life. It's this beautiful thing and you want it to grow and blossom. To me, most people I talk to for various reasons, I think they view the change that you and I have gone through and we're obviously on different paths, but some similarity that they look at this as a backward or a step weird, or my mom is like, oh, it's great that people like you and Greta are doing all these things. And you say that you love it. And I say, I do love it. And she's like, yeah, I know you say that. I did a podcast episode with her. I'm like, mom, do you not believe me that I really prefer this? And she's like, no, I don't. I'm like, it's my mom. <laughs> but that's what I get a lot of. And so there's a, a, I felt a comfort and an understanding and I felt able to be open talking about things that with others have to explain before I even say them and frame it so that they don't see it their way. That's one of the things that made it very comfortable for me. Yeah, I think and it's not a unique observation to me, but when you watch a film or listen to music, it's, I think, quite broadly understood that we all want to relate to the subject. Relatability is such a key aspect of lives that we we yearn for we don't want to feel alien and when you see a film and you can relate to a character it's quite comforting even if the film's maybe quite challenging but if you can connect to relate to something or someone it, it, yeah, it's quite fulfilling and rewarding and safe 
And when, certainly I can speak for me, when I spend so many hours of my life talking and doing a, a very unique thing at a particular level, it can get quite lonely. I don't want to like come across holier than thou in this thing. It's just that I've done something and Rhett can link that to you in a second, but I've done something which is completely unique and you know, I've been lucky and privileged to have the opportunities to do what I've done. And it is far removed from kind of normal society and normal business and normal, all of all of the, those things. And it's quite a lonely place and not that many people can relate to it. And again, I'm not saying that some sort of superstar or anything. It's just that I've done something really unique. And I think it's nice to connect with you uh, on that level so yeah I think that's an aspect of uh, why it was a nice conversation you said you were lucky and you probably had a fair amount of luck and privilege you said you also in the video there's a note that really there's a beat in the video and I, I recommend everyone watch the video and I'll link to it in the notes where you said you wanted to give up and you wanted to give up and you wanted to give up and you wanted to go or you, you tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed and you're ready to give up and then just then something changed and like people started coming into the restaurant. I don't know if that was Brighton or London. And it felt like you turned a corner and they say, what is like chance favored the favors the prepared mind, or we make our own luck. What can you tell us about that? Like how you felt about to give up and then what happened? Yeah. So there's a lot of very straightforward struggles that were occurring at that time. Financial security was a huge struggle. The feeling that no, what I was doing at that time was just not appreciated. It's the path of uh, most resistance in, in almost all ways. And I believed that there was something very special in what we were doing, but other people didn't. And so that is a great demonstrative source of demotivation so there was a lot of reasons financial pure motivational absence that were so discouraging that I wanted to every not every day but like I it was a very regular feeling that I should give up but it's just not in my I was too afraid to give up I'm too afraid of failure that I will not pay myself for for years and work 80 hours meanwhile to not fail I'm so afraid of failure that I just kept grinding forward and just not letting it 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 sink under the ocean and it didn't and there was a moment of the cavalry arriving Gandalf and his riders of Rohan sort of in a sort of figurative way and that would be referencing we mentioned before I'm pretty sure the Blue Planet moment, the plastic pollution, and then boom, society started. Our business went up 30%, and the conversation just changed radically that day. Since then, it's just got a whole lot easier, but there were some dark times waiting for that revolution to to begin, for that light, for for Gandalf. (laughs) The other, slightly more on a creative level, but the other... Analogy here, I, I really is the um, in Alice in Wonderland. There's the rabbit, and it's a metaphor. The rabbit for the sort of whenever she wants to get Alice wants to like just go home and give in and on the adventure. When it's too much, the rabbit reappears to show her the way. And it's very these creative processes, and that's the business as a whole isn't necessarily that, but. Yeah, you're following that rabbit. You believe in something. You believe that this path is the right path that's leading you somewhere important. And you believe that this is your fate. And when you are about to throw in the towel, when you're about to give up, that rabbit just like reappears and there's like a shows you the way again. And some sort of like cosmic serendipity. I'm not sure exactly how that works. It's beyond, way beyond my understanding. But this, it's happened like that for me. It really has when on this very difficult path. There's always been this like just enough hope to hang on. And when there's no more hope, something appears. Something has always happened. 
do you remember? It sounds almost like there was almost like a 24 hour period of when Blue Planet came on. Do you remember the emotions just before? And did you know this is, a, it could have been a blip or it could have been a long-term change. Did you know at the time that it was a long-term change? And when you did see that it was, how did the emotions change? Was it, I presume happy, but like glee or satisfaction or feeling proved or? So I think, and I'm almost certain you're going to agree, but I'm going to try and I'm not confident in how well I can articulate this because it's actually a kind of mini revelation that's just happened in my head. So it's like raw at the moment. But I'm certain that it's not these zero waste, uh, sustainability, environmentalism, none of these things can be a trend because they're so the health of this planet and our lives on it are so predicated on those things that they cannot be a trend. They are inevitably just going to radically awaken and radically explode into everyone's minds. It's going to be this kind of exponential boom of of awareness. And that isn't something that kind of, it might flicker, but it's inevitably going to boom into mainstream consciousness. It is because it's so black and white, it's conclusive and absolute that it has to be the future. It just, it seems completely implausible that it could ever not, it could ever slow down. Maybe for like, when I say flicker, there's always like doubts with politicians saying this and lying about that and bad films made, like, you know, I'm not going to name names, but films that seem, well, that cherry pick information and then you lose confidence with a thing, but they're the flickers. This is an inevitable, like, landslide to a, I don't want to say a sustainable future because we're past the point of sustainability. There's too much damage done, but it's inevitable we move it. We have to radically move towards I'm struggling for the right. I, I want to do it justice, but I can't say it in words because it's, it's very raw in my head. But um, a better version of humans' relationship to nature, our, our time on Earth needs to be radically revolutionized. And we are inevitably going to move forward towards that, whatever misshapen shape that will be. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a vision for what it might look like? You're saying it's raw. But I'm also hearing that I would guess that if I asked you 10 years ago how you would live 10 years from then, meaning now, I doubt you could imagine this, but I imagine you could imagine everyone in the world going through something like this. Yeah. One of my least favorite questions, not that this is the question, but are you an optimist or a pessimist? And that's my least favorite question because I definitely, which is ironic, I'm more pessimistic. I don't even think it's pessimism. It's looking at patterns and seeing evidence. I'm seeing evidence in patterns. I'm seeing patterns in uh, human behavior. I'm seeing patterns in what I just said is obviously a positive thing that we're de- we have to. And it's not even we have to. It's inevitable that we are going to um, become more and more aware of demise of nature and how predicated our health is on the health of nature but looking at the rate of change and the rate of damage that unfortunately is quite a grisly picture and unfortunately that's where I would be I would have to call myself a pessimist but although I don't like the word pessimist because it's inherently negative it's just uh, rationalist is rationalistic to see these things but then you might say why you know why is it surely you've got to be an optimist to open a zero waste restaurant and fight in this way and that's a sort of a side tangent but i don't want to indulge in my own motivations too much yes but yeah sorry went on a tangent then yeah, i get asked that a lot optimist or pessimist the big things are people are fixated really they want to know about toothbrushes and toilet paper. It's like the biggest thing in the world for everyone. It's like, ah. And they're like, well, I can't do anything until I figure that one out. And I'm like, leave that one aside. Good. Anyway. All right. So I got the podcast and 
there's a few listeners who contact me a lot and have changed. Like I was at a conference once and this woman came up to me and said, are you, John, at the time it was called Leadership in the Environment, do this podcast. And I said, yeah. And she goes, she told me that a friend of hers suddenly became super environmental. And she asked her why, and her whole family did. And she asked her why, and she said, it was my podcast. And then she started listening to it and started changing her. It was like a really big, very heartwarming for me. Now you interact with people face-to-face, a lot of people every night. Plus there's your staff, all your suppliers. I'm curious how many people in what way that they're changing. Are you seeing, if this is the right word, are you seeing success stories? Are you seeing people transform themselves? Do they come back and do they show gratitude? Do they lead to others? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I don't acknowledge it enough, but I do. Yeah, I do. There was a point where maybe five years ago, I was asked the same question and I didn't. I really didn't. But now I do, actually. Yeah, this morning, getting a message, actually, and that was quite heartwarming. So, yeah, I do see people, yeah, making the effort and the people that dip their toe in and don't like the temperature. It's often the overwhelming nature of this mess that we're in. It's too much. It's so overwhelming when you really... Sometimes maybe you watch a a film about maybe veganism or you watch a film about the environment. And when you really see the cold light of day, it can be too much, too overbearing, too dramatically negative to process. The um, kind of personal philosophy or coping mechanism, better put for, for myself and that I would try and teach other people that go through this. And it happens to a lot of people. I see certain trends in uh, people waking up and there's like a trend, there's a very early spike into veganism and that's a very common trend. And sometimes that goes in different directions. I see certain behaviors change and personal struggles, anger, emotionally speaking, the anger that a newly discovered vegan garners that happened to me and I was very angry. I was very angry every time I saw someone eat meat. And then there's all these emotions that you have to deal with, becoming aware, becoming woke, understanding the reality of our nature. It's terrifying and it can, I've never seen it drive anyone actually insane, but I would do wonder the different prejudices and the different biases and the sort of conflicts it creates and the, the damage in our culture that it creates from this anger and overwhelming nature in oneself. And I think the thing that saved, that saved me from you know, going insane with this overwhelming amount of information, negative information, is the, it's a, it's a belief and it might not sound that special, but it's, I can only do so much. I can only spend as much of my time being as aware and as kind and as positive and as thoughtful as I can possibly be. And that's what I try and do. I really do try that. And then everything else outside that bubble, I just got to let go of that shit. That will bring me down, let go or be dragged. You're making me think as you're saying that of how all the concerns, some people say the environment is one thing of many. I got all these other things to worry about. Yeah. And if you look at our ancestors who are sustainable and or the people today who are living like them, the hunter-gatherers that remain, barely hanging on as we send missionaries and farms into their territories. They're 100% connected with nature. And and I'm not saying some noble, savage stereotype here, but they, when they want to eat, they have to dig it out of the ground or they have to hunt it. And they know the seasons, they know what, and it's not because they feel they have to. I'm not one of them, so I can't say for sure. But it's not like a burden for them. It's not a distraction. And I think, actually, one of the things that I'm, I'm exploring in my book is how when you go on this journey, when you start, at first you think there's a few things to learn maybe. And as you go, there's much, there's ever more stuff to learn. I think of it like if we learn art, drama, or playing the violin, or sculptor, you know, at first you're learning a few techniques. Eventually you're learning about yourself. You're learning about humanity. You're learning about connection with others, expression. And our connection to nature has no shortage. There's no end to how much we can discover 
about ourselves and each other in the world, it's never ending. And unlike, say, learning to play the violin, I remember when I was a kid in tears, having to play scales with my mom, like play another, play another. And she wasn't like mean. It's just, I really didn't want to play violin. But with nature, it's not like, oh, I have to play scales. It's, we get to, and up until, I would guess maybe, certainly living memory, you couldn't help but be within walking distance of a bunch of trees. Now, in my apartment, there's a few things growing on the windowsill. I don't have any pets. If I look outside the window, if I look down one way, I can see a park. But otherwise, it's pretty devoid of life. That wasn't possible before. And now there's billions of people living in favelas and slums and things that for us Westerners, it's like almost unimaginable. But the connection to nature is, how do I put it? The way I usually say it is you're off to the races. Once you start dipping your toe in the water and you realize, and once you get acclimated to it, there's no end to the discovery, to the joy. And it's internal, it's external, it's with other people, it's with nature. That's what you're making me think of. Mm, yeah. Do you ever, um, uh, are you ever starved of nature so much that when you return to that nature, you have an intimate moment with nature, like you hug a tree or you do anything like that? Because I, I do, I genuinely, it's so weird. I drove to Scotland after eight months in London or whatever and got out to these hills and my body was like melting. The anxiety and the stress and the tense of tense nature of my body just like relaxed over these many hours of driving to Scotland. And I just had this weird thing where I was, can we stop the car? And I just, there was this beautiful like wood that was super um, densely, the trees are really close to each other and the, the ground itself was soft, mossy, and we were so far from everything. And I just crawled in and just laid in a fetal position. And it was so weird. And my friend, I was doing it in a joke. Like my friends were with me and they were like, what the hell are you doing? But it was so primal. It felt like, and it felt so, it was so weird. Yeah. Yeah, a few years ago, I discovered June berries, also called service berries. They have lots of different names. And there's lots of things like this, but they come out in June and, oh, here's what happened. My building has a couple of them uh, on the ground floor and everyone walks past them, doesn't know that they're berries and that doesn't know they're edible. People are like, maybe they're poisonous. So they're delicious, incredibly delicious. And the city has now planted, I don't know if it's on purpose, but I think they're, they're native here. And so they've been putting them around different places. And I now know... As far as I know, like every Juneberry tree within walking distance of my place. And when June comes around, I go crazy. I'm, I don't go crazy. Every day I pick as many as I possibly can. And one of the feelings I have is I feel like a child. I feel like a kid just eating these berries. And here's what I think. All right, I'll just pick two more. Okay, like 10 more. Okay, just a little bit more. And I'm there for an hour just picking berries. And people walk by and they don't know. And part, I used to feel like I don't want them to know because if there's only a few plant, a few of the trees around and there's 8, billion, 8 uh, million people in the city, they're going to eat all the berries. I'm not going to get any. But now I'm like, that's terrible. I can't think that way. And so I don't go out of my way to tell everyone, hey, try these berries. But if they ask, and then they last in my, I, I ferment them so that I used to freeze them, but now I ferment them to last for months afterward. Then I found a couple mulberry trees, one of which is in the middle of Central Park. And people have no idea. Like it drops so many berries on the ground that as I'm picking them, I'm sliding around on the ground as if I'm standing in snow because there's so many berries on the ground. And I feel terrible. Like I want to eat every single one. And I found a couple by the, I took sailing lessons because to get off North America and near the marina where I took the lessons, there were a couple of mulberry trees there. And then last summer I found some, I took a bike ride out to really far out, almost to JFK and found a whole bunch of mulberry trees out there. And that was on a 70 mile ride, not to find mulberry trees. But when I found them, I then went out again. I rode, I made it shorter, but I rode 50 miles just to get some mulberries because they're that delicious. And that flavor, and I feel like an emperor or king. If I were an emperor, I couldn't get them any fresher than if I picked them myself. Yeah. There's... It's just un, in, ineffable joy 
unspeakable joy of how good it tastes. And yeah, it's just pure and primal and, you know, yeah, evolutionary. Yeah, like a true, there's a word that the Greeks call, let me find this word. It's like, it's a Greek word for like underlining happiness. Um, what is that word? Eudaimonia. Uh, eudaimonia. Thank you. I was just about, <laughs> literally looking at it as you said it. <laughs> eudaimonia. Yeah, that's definitely how I would describe that sensation. Yeah, it costs nothing. I haven't paid a penny for Juneberry. For that matter, I didn't pay for the bike ride out. I guess I paid for the fare to go to New Jersey. And there's also a few plants that I've found. There's a lot of lavender plants that I just eat the leaves. And I can only eat a couple at a time because it's a very strong flavor. Kind of basil-like, kind of sage. Oh, also going up to, I belong to CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, where I pick up every week I go to a drop-off point where the farm drops off enough for all the people who have subscribed. They plant not for the market. They plant for their customers, for people. And they're not trying to make the thing that's the most, that someone will pick off the rack, not rack, but the table at the farmer's market, or that the best business for them is for someone who subscribed one year to subscribe again the next year very quickly. That means flavor and quantity. And when you first said experiences, now I'm used to their stuff, but I can tell you a lot of times people come over and I offer them like a carrot and from the, this farm. And it's a common refrain of they bite into it and they say, I remember that flavor from when I was a kid. Now that's even getting stuff here. When I go up to the farm, I go up to the cherry tomato plants. Every, so every year, Labor Day, a big holiday at the end of August, early September rather, they organize a day when people, who, we, we can all go to the farm. And I like won't eat that morning, maybe not even have dinner the night before because I want to be full hungry to get. I don't even pick the cherry tomatoes off the vine. I put the cherry tomato in my mouth while it's still on the vine in case it might have lost a bit of flavor in that one second in between. I want to burst to come out of my mouth. And living in New York with all these great chefs, I felt like if I'm not going to be eating out so much, I'm going to miss out on all this great stuff. And I've, I think my food tastes better now than ever. That mm. Here's a big realization that I had of we have heirloom tomatoes here that are grown from heirloom varietals. And, and one of the, I asked people this question, do you know what they used to call heirloom tomatoes? They used to call them tomatoes. That was normal. And what, we get in the supermarkets 12 months out of the year shipped in from California that has become tomato. That's become normal. Yeah. If I sort of planning on projecting a few bigger ideas out there in, in the years to come or in the books to come, but like systems, I like systems thinking and I like the idea of designing a system for zero waste and regenerative agriculture and connecting people to nature, to food. Yeah, one of the one of the sort of touch points, the, the pressure points is the obviously the I say supermarket, but place in which people purchase food. And I'm not talking about a farmers market, but on a more mainstream level, because in this system it's not looking at a privileged few, it's looking at everyone. And there's a lot of rhetorical language to be considered. And it's interesting are you suggesting heirloom or tomatoes. They're definitely in my visual mind of this system, and this is slightly creeping into a more artistic expression, but the flipping the switch on the organic aisle and having like smoking kills, it's like this food is toxic. And I just in my mind there's a reversal of what that space looks like and the rhetorical language used in food and there's a lot of fun i won't go into the individual details right now but there's a lot of fun to be had in designing that say supermarket space and the language within modern industrialized food societies we create euphemisms for offal so we don't call like lamb's fry as lamb's testicle and chitterlings is intestines and 
we're hiding what something is. You don't see animals' faces, all of these interesting psychological kind of, yeah, grey areas. I would really like to explore how and which we articulate that in a positive, holistic way. But yeah, there's sort of the general one that I'm not the only one to think of is it shouldn't be the organic aisle. It should be the non-organic aisle. This is actually toxic. This could make you infertile. This could give you cancer. This all of the above with all of the mysteries we have when it comes to food that is highly processed, non-organic food. There is that. And that. so we've seen that in like smoking kills, very aggressive the marketing language around this is bad for you and we don't have that with ultra processed food we have when something's not ultra processed it's this is good for nature and it's highly overpriced because it's too expensive or whatever economical circumstances yeah make that this you know middle class sort of elitist food but in this system it's a utopian system, but yeah, basically I have a, a design in my head, which is if there was no complications with politics, greed, manipulation of power, then essentially if everything was neutral and I had the opportunity to design a, a zero waste system for, let's just say, an agrarian scale food system, like a city or a town, I would love the opportunity just to project that design into the world and Without, again, politics or greed or capitalistic kind of control, I think it would be a really interesting proposition. And uh, yeah, language is a, a particularly interesting one that, uh, yeah, I'm sure you have some thoughts on as well. I'm curious your interaction with, I was, I started to, when I was preparing for this conversation, I was thinking about how you interacted with staff, customers, competition, suppliers. And then I thought of government. I thought of a friend of mine, his restaurant has since closed, but he had a raw food restaurant where nothing was heated over a certain temperature. And the government, the city inspector comes through and every year the person comes through and they have a checklist of like how everything, the cleanliness of everything. And they have to check the stove. So he's got no stove. So they're like, what am I supposed to do? I got to fill this out. If, if I don't check this box that your stove is clean, then you don't pass. And he's like, I don't have a stove. And I don't know where it went with that. He passed in some way because this well, is since closed, but the restaurant was open for a long time. Do you interact with the government? Do they want you to behave a certain way? That McDonald's, for example, is super clean. It's probably not that clean, but that's one of their big things because everything's identical. So they can pass with flying colors. A lot of these things that make them look clean in just like the germs on the um, surface that they bleach like crazy it's clean. The rest of the world, they're not so clean about. Have you inter interfaced with the government? Have you had to deal with them not making sense or them wanting to change? Yeah, they're in a single word, no. But there's a, there's a lot in what you just said, and I'd like to comment on it. There is, just for the record, like if you went into silo, it is immaculate. It really is like hygiene, organization. It's like really almost taking inspiration from McDonald's in heightened efficiency and da, da 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 However, on a stepping back and looking at the obsess, the obsessive nature we have with cleanliness, and this is a really prickly thing to say because we're yeah, we're dealing with warped understanding of what is clean. Was it Howard Hughes that was obsessed with like germs? went mad uh, with trying to clean himself. And there is this incredibly, and again, account a lot of this to industrialism, but there is this obsession, this homogenous view on germs are bad. Clean is good, dirt is bad to a degree which is detrimental because we're alive and we're on a planet which is alive. And what constitutes being alive is bacteria. And we're fighting against that. And I don't have to convince you or your audience, but we're all aware that gut health, a healthy uh, microbiome is a diversity of these bacterias. And we, and this, I might lose some of your audience with this, but we are too much to an extreme of cleanliness and hygiene. And I can say it, but in this is in my personal life, 
food is only not edible when it's slimy or smells bad or tastes bad. But that is remarkably more robust than what the best buy or used by dates would suggest. Probably 90% longer shelf life than the actual shelf life that is dictated by the government or the health board. And I think that it's a very difficult one because people are like freak out when you talk about this sort of thing. But there needs to be a much more robust understanding or robust attitude to consuming uh, food. There's a lot of waste because we think it's bad. We think it's out of date. We think that's going to somehow poison us, which it's a difficult one because I do understand the pitfalls and the sensitivities that certain people have. I appreciate the nuance in this, but and I am generalizing. But generally, <laughs> there is a overcompensated hysteria over sell-by dates, use-by dates, defective food, tired food, all these different adjectives we can describe food that's past its best. And yeah, I have a very strong resistance in my stomach to food that's uh, questionable. When you get, often people go to Asia and have a lot of street food and then just vomit, I just don't because I not always keep food in my refrigerator like yourself with abstaining from that chilled food system. Yeah, I, I just cook food and I'll leave it overnight. And I just have this belief. And this is just a belief that no, nothing of what I'm saying is proven. But I believe that my resistance is so much more robust because of this attitude. And I think that would be more that would be beneficial uh, to society if that obsession with sterility moved back a bit maybe like 20 percent that sell-by date was give it an extra few days sort of thing yeah what i mean in systems thinking if you have a complex system that has some amount of resilience then if you don't test it if you don't push the system it doesn't develop that resilience exactly including our immune system brilliantly put that was perfect and yeah, for me, when people are over every now and then I have, I don't know, some collard greens and they're yellowing and I'm not thinking twice about it. I'm just chopping them up, putting them in the stew to cook. And people will often ask, oh, is that edible? And sometimes it's, is that edible open-ended? Sometimes it's, like, oh, what are you doing? How can we, it baffles me. It baffles me when people, yeah, when we waste food because of these things and it is this brainwashed societal vision of what food should be yeah the identical apples that with that shine that looks spooky to me now that's not what apples look that is what an apple looks like on a tree but that's how, what did they do to make them so uniform and also lately i've been well for years now i've been getting but increasing all the time i've been fermenting more and so like fruit when fruit gets um past prime or i get all these free or really cheap apples for vinegar. And it's actually, someone was just over the other day, a guest was uh, New York based and he came over and we recorded here. And I gave him a shot of vinegar. And if I put in not that much apple and no extra sugar, I think it's more like kombucha than vinegar. And he was like, oh, I could chug that. And I actually drink it. It's not that strong. Actually, before it's vinegar, it's wine. And I didn't realize, I, the first time I made a chutney and tasted it, I had, it was just chopped fruit, including June berries, and then a little bit of salt. And I just let it sit. When I tasted it, it didn't taste exactly like the chutneys I'd had in Indian restaurants, but it was really good. I mean, like tons of flavor. I couldn't believe how much flavor came in, especially given how little effort I put into it. And this process of fermenting things is giving me a whole new, which I thought was complicated. I thought, oh my God, I'm playing with life. It's like, I could really mess up here. And actually it's the opposite. It's almost impossible to mess up. Even if it gets moldy, I can just take the mold off and but eventually learn how to make it more effectively. It's really flavorful. Do you do a lot of fermenting? It's the backbone of everything we do. It's almost, it isn't on every dish because we got told that it's too prevalent, but if I had my way, I would have every on every dish. If I wasn't listening to reason or uh, customer feedback, I'd have it on every dish because we have so much of it. 
and it's just there's so many yeah wonderful virtues of fermenting food and but yeah it is the ultimate it's the golden gateway to zero waste fermented food is so inclusive of byproducts and surplus it's the ultimate way of upcycling food when i say inclusive any scraps anything that is good or edible is good to be fermented so many things like turning it into a stock or a soup or like staff food there's limitations there's huge limitations in, in what you can and can't use whereas fermentation is this incredibly expansive inclusion of all byproducts that have no other nowhere else to go there's the end of the line and i don't mean in freshness it's not that but ingredients that you just can't serve any other way and yeah fermentation just can wrap all of that up and we have a we call it the fermentarium so it's like a big glass box of ferments so the fermentarium has huge barrels of egg white garums it has um huge like i'm talking like 100 liter barrels of we call it meta dairy garum so it's all of the ends of dairy and when i say ends it's like at the end of a service where we might have a whey sauce like a whey emulsion that we've got three portions left and it's just not gonna serve any other purpose and we can't serve it for staff because there's not enough of it and it's just not worth putting into a tub to then wash and then clean and label and blah, blah, blah. We'll have, I don't know, at the end of a night, we might have some butter that's been out all service. We might have milk that's slightly souring. We might have, I could list probably 20 different bits and bobs of dairy that have nowhere else to go. And thus we can put them into a, a salty bath of koji, the dairy we reduce the dairy like we caramelize it to firstly ward off any bad bacteria so boom we've just solved any kind of health concerns boom and then we're actually caramelizing it the proteins are caramelizing which then get mixed it, the whole mix gets koji and salt 14 percent koji 10 uh, percent salt in dairy garums and then that will sit at an ambient temperature don't tell the environmental health officers that but then that it get, turns into what we call liquid gold. And it is liquid, a gold-colored liquid that tastes like some uh, god or deity created. It, it's just so divine that it's just remarkable that it was born out of true waste. And that's one example of a byproduct that turns into gold via the golden gateway of fermentation. And there's so many other examples, but yeah, I'll leave that there and, and just say that, yes, fermentation is the, it's the most elegant way to close the loop. Did you learn all this in the doing or did you know it ahead of time? Did you learn it by from other people telling you or books or videos or just trial and error? Yeah, it's a popular thing in kitchens. And I think the Noma is the restaurant in Copenhagen and a highly influential restaurant and a lot of different ways. And predominantly fermentation and i have do talks for the mad academy which is over there in copenhagen so they're kind of school and did a stage there once a work experience and it's just always been my favorite restaurant in the world and they released a book on fermentation and yeah i don't know yeah that would be the main source of inspiration and education i also work with um, a guy called dr johnny drain who is actually a material scientist, but fermentation, he's switched his focus on to fermentation. And he worked at the Nordic Food Lab, which is Noma's food lab. And he lives on a boat outside of Silo, like one of these um, lives on a barge and uh, Silo's on a canal and he lives just outside. And, and he's just a wealth of information and leadership and guidance with fermentation. How about fungus? Another thing that I've, I haven't started dipping my toe in of growing my own yet, but or do you guys do that? Koji is fungus. So koji is a cultivated fungus. So we're basically growing spores on a grain. In our case, we use sprouted buckwheat because it's you know local and the sprouting process is, is just particularly good for growing koji on. And then it's gluten-free. And uh, yeah, we grow aspergillus orizai. I can never pronounce that, but yeah, it's a, a spore that grows on... The, um, the sprouted buckwheat and it's just a white mold 
And that is the base of all of our garums and misos and shoyus. And, but then, so yeah, koji is something that we cultivate every week. But then next to that is, uh, I'm sure you've heard of, and I'm sure your guests have heard of. And so mycelium is another, it's almost identical in that, like it's a cultivated fungus. You cultivate it in the same way. It grows into this white mass and it needs a substrate to grow on and you can grow it. And we have furniture made from koji, uh, mycelium. We have stools and tables that are grown in like less than two weeks. So we have the tables and chairs that are made out of spent beer grains and they grow the mycelium like a web of white mold up into a shape, like a molded sculpted chair shape that the spent beer grains are laid around and the fungus grows, suspends all of the grain because it's such an intricate web fungus and then it's uh, bait to to stop the growth basically and to seize the shape and the form into furniture so we actually grow not we but we grow koji but we have furniture made from mycelium and if mycelium is just a fascinating subject there's a brilliant one of my favorite speakers is a guy called paul stamets and i highly recommend anyone just watch paul stamets TED Talk. It was a long time ago, but it was six ways that mushrooms could save the world. And he's one of my favorite yeah, characters. He is such a character. He's mad as a box of frogs and just wonderful. Just wonderful. I was going to ask what's, my, what's a good way to start. And I feel like that's probably a good way to start. Because I know it's, it's like right there, it's been sitting for me to, to start giving a shot at that and maybe getting some worms and composting in here. And I didn't think of like growing furniture, although it does touch on something that kills me. Walking around here, the amount of stuff, furniture is the thing that really gets me thrown away. Here's the things that get me the most. Furniture being thrown away. And when I'm picking up litter, the number of water bottles that are half or three quarters full that are just discarded. Someone bought, like they didn't even need or want the water. It's just this fleeting moment of, oh, I just want some water and I pay a dollar or two for something that for a thousand years is still going to be plaguing us. But the furniture, it's, I think people generally see furniture as disposable and like, oh, I'll get it for a few years and then throw it away and I'll get some other for another few years and throw it away. I don't know what the thinking landfills are like, just like the stuff just disappears. And I feel like people used to get this stuff for generations. You'd have a couch and then you'd give the couch to your kids and they'd give it. And now it's just, it shows how little we value things. We live in a world in which we don't value things around us. You don't get rid of stuff that you value. And it's funny because when I pick up litter, I think of, I actually value this piece of plastic. Anyway, but so when you talk about growing furniture, I'm thinking in some senses actually is, is disposable in the sense of, I presume that if you leave it in the woods, it'll just turn into Exactly, food. yeah, exactly. Forgive me, I'm apologizing in advance for planting this seed of, of thought, but you're touching essentially on consumerism and consumerist behavior i was enlightened to as a perspective and this is goes into a pattern of human behavior and human nature therefore and it's as a species one of the kind of unique common denominators is that we consume and can consume and then you think oh what other what does that remind us of <laughs> what does and you think it's like a, a virus <laughs> and you look at human history and it's we're a virus consuming and consuming. And then when we run out of food, we move and then start consuming. And it's a terrifying vision. And I apologize in advance for this reason. But yeah, it is consumerism. And that what I'm planting a seed of and I'm apologizing for, very insightful. It might sound concerning. <laughs> But it's really insightful because when you are conscious of this notion that we're like consuming, you start to notice yourself and your own habits. And I'm not saying you, Josh, but maybe some of your listeners, but like I see it all the time in myself and it goes through phases and I go through a switch and change and I'm consuming this, binging on you know Netflix or having too many coffees in a day and just I can't sit still for half an hour 
what can I consume? Even if it's intellectual information, it's still a need to consume more things. And that, it really does open your awareness to like, oh my God, this kind of relationship we have to consuming is quite scary. And I think by being aware, and imagine if every billion humans on earth were aware of this, how that direction of consumption would would redirect. And that hopefully, actually, it didn't mean to come out of this, but it's a more, much more optimistic thing is mindfulness awareness. If we can be aware of these things, we can redirect our behaviours and our trends in society to much more sustainable and ethical behaviours. And yeah, that I think that's actually quite a nice example of, of being aware and turn something quite dark into something (laughs) hopefully not too dark but yeah i i do worry about my own consumption habits and it's very unconscious it is so deeply embedded into systematized way of living that we're just not aware of that and some people i'm sure you're a great example of somebody that's way more like online to (laughs) that behavior but it's amazing when you think about it in a very broad way how, yeah, you can notice it in lots of different ways. You attributed this viral behavior, and I also think of cancer as like that as well, because cancer could stop. I don't know if a virus could stop, but cancer, I understand that we form cancer cells all the time, but we also ward off cancer cells all the time. But it wants to keep growing. And you attribute it to humanity, and I would have for a long time as well. And the more that I learn about other cultures, I attribute it to a culture that happens to be dominating the world right now. But from my book, I learned about, I mean, there's indigenous cultures all over the world, or were, and there still remain a few. And for the book, I was learning about the San Bushmen in Southern Africa, and James Sussman was a guest on the show who studied them a lot, and learning about the Hawaiians on Hawaii before, after the Polynesians stopped trading with them and before the Captain Cook found them, they lived stably for something like 500, a thousand years, not a thousand, but like at least 500. And now I've been learning about the Hadza in Tanzania of many. I mean, Braiding Sweetgrass is this book by um, Robin Kimmerer about Native Americans. And one of the things that happens, they don't get more than they need. They get what they need for the day. They eat it. And then in terms of food, and then the next day they go out and get more. And Europeans as colonizers would call them lazy. Oh, you could be doing more. You could be planting for the future. But they, anyway, it's a culture, a set of, you said it's systematized. It's a non-thinking behavior, which I agree. And I attribute that becomes our culture, a culture in Hawaii. They, in some sense, they had it easy because they could look around, see their islands. That's their world. If we use this up, no alternative. For us, it's a little harder because the earth is so big, we can't see it all at once. I don't know if you can see all the Hawaiian Islands at once, but they, I'm pretty sure the archipelago was close enough and at the same time, distant enough from anything else that they're like, this is what we got. If we blow this, we're over. In, in principle, that's the case with us for earth, but the scale is so much off, it's hard for us to get that. And we got all those fossil fuels. We can imagine that we can produce more than we can and not realize the unsustainability of it. Yeah, that's very, it's beautiful. It's almost poetic. It is, it is poetic example to give that, that suggests that all organisms aren't inherently toxic. There are many examples of innocuous organisms and yeah, species. And when you think about, it's not a perfect example, but before humans developed this abstract thought and started you know, creating things that were not part of nature's plan. You could argue that it was part of nature's plan, but let's just go back before humans had abstract thoughts. This actually, just to quick note on that, like, yeah, basically, and some of your readers, uh, listeners um, might be interested in, so humans are a unique species because we have abstract thoughts and what I mean by abstract thoughts and brilliantly portrayed in the book uh, Sapiens and Noel Huer, I can never pronounce his name, Harari, Yuval Harari, talks about two different realities. One is an objective reality that every other species on earth obeys in, and is aware of. That a rock is a rock and rain is rain, it's wet, a tree, blah, 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 blah. These are objective things and 
And you could say like a car is an objective thing. It's made out of objects. But then there is this imagined reality, this other reality. Now, this is unique to the human race. This is the abstract thoughts. And we've created things that don't exist in nature. Law, religion, money. These things are all constructs that, that are out of our imagination. And other creatures, organisms, don't have this same abstraction. And that is... Yeah, I think it's an, it's an observation that has changed my, my life, my career. It, it doesn't sound like, it might sound like a, a stretch, but it really has guided Silo and, and guided myself into navigating our relationship with nature and the way I see that relationship. And that is uh, it's just a fascinating thing. But going back before then to digress, before we developed that, oh, and the last thing I want to say, Paul Stamets, the guy I mentioned before, the how mushrooms could save the world, he has this theory that humans developed, so cooking, the way humans discovered fire, and then we were able to cook food, which is super interesting, that cooking basically meant that we could get five times more energy into our brains because we cooked food. And again, that was unique to, to humans. So we were gaining so much more energy, which doesn't necessarily explain developing abstract thoughts, not necessarily. It says we have more mental capacity, more mental energy. But Paul Stamets brilliantly suggests that psilocybin, magic mushrooms, as we were hunter-gatherers, it's highly plausible that through taking mushrooms, <laughs> that is the birth of these abstract thoughts that I'm talking about. Then if anyone's interested in that, I highly recommend looking at Paul Stamets. I highly recommend reading the book Sapiens. And there's, a, yeah, they're, they're really interesting. But so, yeah, but before all of that, there were, yeah, much more benign systems, much more less declining, disastrous systems with humans in nature. And that's, yeah, an observation that like we don't have to, it's a really difficult thing to say, actually. Yeah, nature is a, a balanced ecosystem, not perfectly balanced, but it is a system, an ecosystem that is basically, it basically wants harmony. It wants to be harmonious. It wants balance. That's what nature wants, life and death. That's what it is trying to sustain. And we oppose that quite deeply. But I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not, we're not, it is possible. And maybe awareness, maybe it's going back to the magic mushrooms and the, being aware of these things that is the redemption in, in this tale. And who knows, we've damaged the earth in a tiny, tiny blink of an eye. Like it's only the last 200 years, not, not only, but the significant damage to earth has been done since industrialism in the last sort of 200 years. And it's significantly growing, but it's a tiny, we've tripped, we have tripped over. Now, if we learn, if we get up and we learn why we've tripped over, we can hopefully avoid tripping over again and find this equanimity, this balance, this harmony. And your wonderful example of a community that proves that humans can coexist with nature without fucking up nature. <laughs> yeah, you said you hit on an analogy that I've been exploring a lot of of the tripping up, and the way I put it is we is we made a wrong turn. I think that a lot of people look back and say, "Look at Europe in the medieval times, and people were dying at thirty years old. That was old age. Everyone was diseased and living in mud." And clearly we've improved since then. How could we, that's so obvious. And then you extrapolate back. And in this view, the cavemen were bordering on starvation all the time. I'm sure everyone has heard the story. The reason we put on weight so fast now is that our bodies are designed to live in scarcity and we didn't know when the next meal would come from. But actually when we look at the hunter gatherers, that's not the case at all. We have food insecurity today, but they didn't have food. They don't have food insecurity, but that's the picture that they have. And so we, as did I, Right. And somewhere along the line comes fusion. And then they, all our answers, that's the answer to all our prayers. And we can desalinate water and we get pure water everywhere and everything like that. And how can we not keep, of course, there's ups and downs, but we're generally going toward this bright future. And, but fossil fuels are a, a wrong turn. It's a wrong turn as wrong as colonialism, as wrong as slavery, that 
we, and what I like about this analogy of making a wrong turn is that we've all made wrong turns, walking around, driving. And it's very tempting after making the wrong turn to try to keep going and eventually get back on the path that we meant to stay, that we were supposed to be on. In my experience, now in New York, I can do that because the streets are grid. If I try to do that in Paris or London, I'm getting more and more lost all the time. But the analogy is more like not Paris or London, but some like really sketchy neighborhood where, and it's dark, or really it's more like it's a minefield because life is at stake. And the way to get back on track is to reverse course and go back to the last time you were on track and then move forward again from there. It's so tempting to stumble around in the wilderness and we generally keep getting more and more lost. And I think the past several generations are pretty clear indication that all of our attempts at decoupling and green growth and cap and trade and even renewable energy doesn't look very renewable. The more I look into it, wind and solar require tons of fossil fuels. In fact, more fossil fuels than we have a budget for before going over two, three degrees. But here's what works. Stop using all the power. It, it, like we could do that. It's before 1903, nobody flew at all. And we can, yeah. So this analogy of something's gone wrong. This is not, we're not on a path toward a brighter future. And the way to get back to it is to go back to, it, it, it's not going backward if you're on a wrong course. Absolutely. Yeah. And by the way, going back to the beginning of the conversation, this is why I'm enjoying this conversation is that I can, the look on your face as I read it, and you, I'm sharing an analogy that I'm kind of raw for me. I've shared a bit on my podcast on the blog. For most people, it's no, Josh, fusion is the answer or something like that. So I'm getting to explore things that with others, there's pushback and debate, which I'm looking for to understand how to communicate these ideas more but it's comfortable to find that I'm not crazy, that I'm not, it's not just, not just crazy, but not just pushing. It's not pure resistance out there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I yeah, very much appreciate your worldview and appreciate how difficult a line is to tow with communicating that it is so easy to be called elitist. It's so easy to be called mad it's so easy to be oppressed in having radical views so difficult in in all of these you know social touch points to convey a, a genuinely meaningful compassionate statement feeling values set of values it is very difficult so yeah certainly i employ you for the work you do and yeah i hope that you because no matter how brilliant you are at the, all of the above, you're going to, and I don't need to know you any more or any less, to know that you're going to have a huge amount of resistance in saying these things and doing these things, no matter how well you do them, there's going to be a huge amount of resistance. And making peace and being fully conscious of always of that resistance and knowing that it's there and seeing it not as yeah making peace with that and uh, yeah resistance it isn't futile yeah just let go of when it does drag you let go just make peace with that struggle because it's inevitable and i'm sure you already realize that you yeah you're, you're here talking to me in this way and i know that you've been through it already so this i'm sure but maybe someone who's listening who is themselves struggling with that resistance, trying to realizing all these things, being so overwhelmed and angry and frustrated, and then trying to understand why the world isn't listening. Why is the world so apathetic in these truly good, honest virtues? Why do people, why are people angry? Why are people opposing me and resisting me so aggressively? That is nature. That is human nature. And that is way beyond our realm of control or our understanding. So just make peace with that and let go of that. Work with it and appreciate it and be empathetic towards it, but let go or be dragged. 
Oh yeah. I knew that what you said, I would know intellectually, but you're saying it. I can't tell you how much you've given me fortitude for, I don't know, at least a few more months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Well, yeah, next time you need a little hit, I'll just check in, give me a call and I'll say something the same. And I'll probably need the same myself every few months. <laughs> I was actually thinking we're, we're over an hour and, I'm, and people are telling me it's just, I should keep it to an hour and I could try to wrap things up. I could also invite you back for another episode. If you're game for more conversation, pick up here. Where yeah. Going. Yeah. Let's have a little, let's go and explore this realm and have a few more knocks fall over a few more times. And let's have another conversation and pick ourselves back up. Okay, so without wrapping up or anything here, I'll just, we'll finish this conversation. We'll pick up roughly here next time. I talk to you again soon. Brilliant. See you later. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.